Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. All right, everyone, welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. And I'm Marnie Breaker, and we are your co-hosts. And today we have a wonderful guest named Jake Porter. He is the president and founder of Daring Ventures. And he's going to come on and talk about uh, partner betrayal trauma and healing and all of that stuff. So Jake, you wanna introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Sure, sure. Yeah, my name is Jake Porter. am from and continue to live in the Houston area. So um, I'm I'm hot and humid most of the year. Um, I do have a practice here during ventures. We specialize in seeing individuals and couples who are working to overcome the effects of trauma and addiction in their lives and in their relationships. Um, I am married. Uh, we are expecting our first child any day now actually thank you congratulations by the time this episode airs you will have a child yes yes i was thinking that as i said i will probably have a child out in the world by the time this is heard uh so i'm getting to practice all of my grounding skills and uh fighting against you know catastrophizing and all those sorts of uh delusional thinking Um, (laughs) right which we all have to do when we when we're new when we're new parents (laughs) Right. I feel, I feel like there'd be something wrong if I wasn't doing that. Um, but yeah, I've done lots of trainings in um, treating sexual addiction. I'm a CSAT. Uh, I've done the APSATS training. So um, a lot of work around partner trauma, lots of attachment-based modalities. I did every level of EFT training, so emotionally focused therapy. And also I've done levels one and two more than once with Stan Tatkin and his awesome. uh, psychobiological approach to couple therapy. That, that's so I great. use all of that to, to help couples heal, which is awesome. what you guys do. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, we try and do the same thing. So I have a little question first before we get sure. started, just to kind of get to know you even more. How did you get into this work and, and how did this work kind of come to be for you? Sure. Well, as with many of us in this field, this work came to me through my own journey. I am in recovery myself. I've been in recovery for um, over a decade, and I was a pastor for many years. For 13 years, I was the pastor of a church. During that time, I got into recovery. A few years later, people, therapists, and, and recovery friends started saying to me, hey, you should really do this work like professionally. So I went back to school and got a third master's degree 
and did, became a licensed clinician and started a practice. And about three years ago, I began doing this work, the clinical work full time. And I really love it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you can really bring yourself to the work. Absolutely. It's, it's very personal for me, for sure. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Obviously you're having a baby, you're married and you went through this. You said 13 years ago. Is that right? Uh, no, I was a pastor for 13 years. Oh, yeah. That was 16 years ago. So I got into recovery uh, about 12 years ago. So my question then is, were you with your wife at the time? And did you go through a couple's recovery process? I was not. I was not with my wife at the time. And I'll tell you when I, so I was single and um, I'm grateful for that. (laughs) Uh, So that I didn't drag someone through that part of my mess. I drug plenty of people through other parts of my mess, but not particularly in that way. And I'm grateful for that. I'll tell you when I first started doing this work, I said, well, I'm going to work with men in recovery. That's it. That's all I'm going to do. And then uh, a colleague of mine, Kathy Reynolds, who I still work with today, who's actually a partner trauma coach, contacted me and, and she said, said, hey, I've got these couples and they're needing disclosures. And I thought, well, I, I really didn't want to do that, but okay. And kind of begrudgingly agreed to start working in a couple's context and seeing uh, some partners and, and all of a sudden it just, it shifted everything for me going from only, only having experienced and really understood recovery from the addicts perspective to suddenly now working with betrayed partners and that, that whole paradigm shift of understanding uh, betrayal trauma. And, and so I thought, okay, well, okay, I'll do a little bit of stuff around like disclosure, but I'm not going to work with couples long-term. And then they were begging me to do that. And why, why did you not want to work with couples? I thought, I thought, I thought, well, number one, that just sounds so messy and hard. And, uh, and I don't want to put up with all those emotions in the room and she's just fighting and, you know, someone else can do that. Who am I to do that? But then my client started kind of like begging, please see us as a couple. And my codependent came out and I couldn't say no. And uh, I'm really grateful because now probably 90 to 95% of my clients are couples. I have just very, very small number of individual clients now. And I absolutely love it. I, couples work is, it's where it's at. I mean, that's what I tell people. And, and we can get into all this more, but through Stan's model of PACT, that helped me understand one of the reasons why I love it so much, which is that, that you don't really see the person in individual therapy. You want to really see who someone really is, get them in a therapy session with their partner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so your your story rings so true to me as well, because that's so similar to my experience too. working with individuals and then starting to do couples and then starting to work on that and then really seeing, wow, the work is done in this relational way. That's really where the deep work and healing work is done is in this relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I've actually developed a model that I call couple centered recovery. And the premise of the model is that okay, betrayal trauma is at its root an attachment injury. 
And then if you look at addiction, I I won't say all, I'm not going to use the word all, but so, so often addiction is the consequence of attachment disorders, right? And, and so if attachment is at the root of both of those problems, and obviously there's been an attachment rupture in that relationship, does it not make sense to put that relationship at the center of the recovery and healing process? That's, so, so, we, mean, so let, let me stop yeah. you for a second then. Yeah. That is exactly what Dwayne and I talk about in our podcast. It's what our entire couples workshops about and it's how we approach our work. But as someone who went through recovery all those years ago, I'm wondering about 12 step involvement because the 12 step program, which we're huge advocates of in terms of, you know, the steps, right. And also right. in terms of support, just support other men having each other to support each other and all that stuff. But there's clearly a, a disconnect in terms of the relational piece. Like what you just said is, you know, having the couple right there together, that doesn't happen. So I'm just curious about your thoughts about that and how that was back then when you were going through recovery. Sure. So, so I got into 12 step. I still consider myself a 12 stepper. I've, I've got a program that I work. So I, I love 12. Step. I'm, I, it sounds like I'm in the same spot you guys are. I think it's great. I think it's important. I think it can be game changing for individuals and 12 step is really good at getting people um, healthier relationally in this way. So I conceptualize of three levels of relational health. Level one is you exist to take care of me or I exist to take care of you, or we just swap that back and forth. Like it's my turn, it's your turn. And that's sort of that old school codependence, right? That we would think of. Right. And that's obviously not very healthy. Level two is I take care of myself and you take care of yourself. And that is worlds better than level one. And you can even make it sound like a really cool Hallmark card, right? Like I take care of me for you, <laughs> you take care of you for me. And that's, that's great. And, and that's the whole my side, your side of the street thing. But to me, that's not optimal. Optimal is level three, which is I can take care of myself and my partner at the same time. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there's more, there's more, you know, there's more out there. And, and so I think 12 step traditionally really helps people get to level two, which is worlds better than level one. And I want to validate and acknowledge that. And I want to say, there's more, there's more out there. <laughs> Keep right. Going. right. Yeah, definitely. I think, and, and that shift to be able to see that, but that third level it can be, it, it can be hard to see see it when you're not understanding attachment. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, sometimes I start talking to clients about this and you know, I might as well be saying you can levitate, you know, or (laughs) we can, we can create a third eye for you from the back of your head. I I might as well be saying something like that because they were conceptualized. They never conceived that such a relationship could be right well let's so okay let's take a step back for a second we've talked about briefly attachment and the fact that obviously when someone has a sex addiction it's rooted in attachment you know that there's major attachment attachment ruptures for a couple after the discovery of addiction right can you maybe just start by defining attachment and what an attachment trauma or an attachment injury is so people can really conceptualize all of this. Absolutely. That, yes, please. Thank you. So 
attachment is a biologically driven uh, primary need of every human being. We're, we're created for it, we're wired for it. And, and what it means is that like woven into who we are and how we exist, we are constantly seeking out, tracking and working to maintain secure attachments with other people. And, and our ability to have these relationships in which we're seen and known and accepted and safe it does several things for us, but the most important things that it does is number one, it actually helps us develop our own ability to regulate. So I love this quote by the Dalai Lama who he was asked, what do you do when you're afraid? And he said, I remember my mother's love. Wow. If you think about isn't that powerful? That's super powerful. So what, so if I have experienced deep within me, what it means to be securely attached, then I can carry that with me so that even when I'm alone, I, I lean on these secure attachments and the memory of the secure attachments to clinically speaking, regulate my affect, to stay grounded, to stay okay, to, uh, you know, bring myself down out of anxiety or, or butt myself up from discouragement. I can, I have that capacity individually because I have that capacity in relationship. So that's, that's the chief thing that attachment does. And so to link that to addiction, if I grew up without that, or if that was interrupted by some trauma or abuse or neglect, then I have a deficit. I, I have a lack of capacity to deal with my internal stressors and my anxiety and my affect regulation. There's that clinical word again. And so I'm going to start using things on the outside to try to manage the way I feel on the inside, whether those are substances or behaviors. And there's the link to addiction. Right. And, and then if you, if you can't do that, you can't have, you can't have a relationship because you can't regulate yourself to be present Yes. In with someone else to be able to join with them and, and to do all that. And you're left alone in the world in a way. Mm -hmm. And, and it, and it begins this feedback loop, right? So, you know, I, I don't have the experience of that safety in relationships. I use these other things to make up for that, which actually set me up to, to either not be a safe person or to not experience the relationship as safe. And it sort of reinforces that original mer uh, message of being alone and um yeah and I mean, that just feedback loop, it just yeah it just reinforces yeah. itself and and then there's this moment uh, for many addicts where it all falls apart uh, you right. know with in relationships it's it's the discovery and that creates this huge rupture and in a way sometimes hopefully forces them to take a second look absolutely and, and i think that attachment is not just important but it is crucial to talk about because when I think about a lot of the clients that I, I saw years ago and they had kind of come out of the treatment era where, you know, they were working with CSATs that really were amazing at getting them sober, great at getting them sober and like setting up a relapse prevention plan, right? And all of that stuff, doing all that task work. That's awesome. So you can have a lot of sober addicts, but what's missing in all of that 
is until we bring in that attachment piece, that component, it, it's not gonna help the relationship because if you just look at the sexual behavior, the majority of my clients will all say, of course I hated the sexual behavior. I wish that he hadn't done that, but that I could get past. There, there's something about the trust, the significant break, yes. trust in the person that was meant to keep you safe, the person that you thought that person has my back, right? Yes. Right. So when there's an a, when there's a, a rupture of a significant attachment bond, that's what creates the betrayal trauma. You know, again, I don't want to minimize yes. the sexual acting out. Nobody wants to be cheated on. Nobody wants all of that. But really, it's these greater wounds that create, I think, what we all see with the clients we work with. Totally, totally. One of the things that early on I began to see was a, was a huge problem in the field. And this is where I, this was one of the things that actually did propel me forward in doing more couples work and, and, and studying um, couple recovery more is that I, I saw that there was this phenomenon, and I saw this both like from the therapist seat, but also out in the recovery world, like knowing men in recovery and seeing them in meetings and hearing their stories is that these guys would get sober, right? I mean, they would, they would get sober and they would establish good individual recovery and their wives would get some, some initial healing from that, you know, trauma brain from all the hypervigilance and all that kind of stuff. They'd go through a disclosure even, but fast forward another year, two, three, four years, and they get divorced. Even, right. even though he's sober and in recovery and she's largely healed from that initial discovery trauma, they end up divorced. And I thought, what is going on here? And, and the way I conceptualize of it is that they have not grieved together. Mm. They, so, so grief is a process of healing, right? Grief is where I acknowledge this loss and now I'm going to reconstruct my understanding of the world that I live in and who I am and who you are. And, and before discovery, the couples, they had a certain storyline. They had a shared history and that shared history between a couple is really the source of identity for the couple. You know, if, if, if I were going out with y'all and, and my wife's there and y'all said, tell me about yourselves, we would tell you our story, right? So at discovery, that story is shattered. Jake, this the, is the, just for clients that, that have listened to our podcast or have attended our workshop, this is the, um, the dumping of the filing cabinet that you're talking about, right? Yes. Where one's entire That's right. identity gets spilled over and they can't make sense of anything anymore. Right. Not only have the files been thrown on the floor, but a whole bunch of really new, nasty, uh, hurtful files have been thrown in the mix. And now that partner is left to reconstruct the history, make new meaning in light of all of this new information. And what I always say is that partner is going to do that one way or another. It's, it's not going to turn out well for the person with the addiction if he or she doesn't participate with the betrayed partner in reconstructing that narrative because they will end up with two different narratives of the past which means they're going to have two different trajectories for the future and they will not make it. 
They have to, they have to work together to grieve together and have a shared collaborative narrative of, of a new understanding of their history that sets them up with a shared trajectory for the future. And every time I say that to a, I use that exact terminology. I say, we have to help you create a shared narrative. And I'll tell you the expression on their faces when I say that is like, Oh my God, that's relief. Like, yes, yes. That that's what we need to do. That makes sense. Yes. Because, because if, if, if I don't trust my partner to tell the story in a way that doesn't throw me under the bus, <laughs> how am I going to build a future with that person? Right. It doesn't mean it has to be identical. We don't have to memorize an exact script. You know, we're never going to see things exactly the same way, but there has to be enough agreement that I trust my partner to tell the story and she trusts me to tell the story. We're going to tell basically the same story. And that allows us to look into the future together. But getting them to that point when there's all that betrayal and lack of trust, talk about that a little bit. Because I think, you know, when we grieve, when we're really in our deep grief, it's incredibly vulnerable experience. And here they are with someone who has betrayed that deep trust. So tell me a little bit about how you work with them to start to build that, to get to that shared narrative. Well, I do think that, that disclosure is an essential step in that process. And, and so I, I, I pull out a chart. I've got a chart and it's got steps and, and phases. Not everyone is identical, but, but I should say to them, generally speaking, here's a roadmap. And before you get to the grief, which again is where the healing happens, there's disclosure in there. And, and the reason why that is so necessary is because grief is a luxury for the brain that knows it's safe. Okay. Well if, said. if I'm on the battlefield and, and my best friend gets shot right there, I'm not going to grieve in that moment. I might panic and I, you know, I, I have trauma, but that's not grief. I'm not going to grieve until there aren't bullets flying at my head. Right. The parts of the brain that are required for grief aren't even online when, when trauma has, has taken over. And so disclosure helps the betrayed partner to get all those pieces so that that, that hippocampal review, that's the file cabinet with, with all the files dumped on the floor. It's the left hippocampus just circling, circling, circling. And, and it's a safety seeking automatic cognitive process that's going on that we have to help that settle down let the dust settle and now we can cross that threshold into grief work but but until all the parts and all the pieces are laid out there it can't it can't happen and that's why it takes such a while to happen because when couples come in right after discovery they are in the midst of that that trauma is so huge. There's been the shattering of one's inner world and right. it's crisis. It's all crisis. And so you're right. There's no ability to grieve because there's the nervous system, usually for both partners, you know, in a relationship sure. right, are just yes. shot. Yes. And that's where that patience just has to come in because you've got to let, you've got to let the nervous system settle. We want out of our pain so fast. When we're in pain, we want to get out. We're like, I got to get out of this right now. It's horrible. But it's like deep breath, breathe, slow down. We got to calm the nervous system down. We'll get there. There's a path. 
And I think sometimes as, yes. as helping professionals, it's just being there in that and, and being that calming force to help them bring that nervous system down so they can do this together. And, and also just to comment on disclosure. Yeah. I, I think it's almost, it, it's really difficult to move forward without that formal disclosure process. Yeah. Have that shared narrative. You can't really do it unless you have yeah. you're on the same page and you're operating from right. The same uh, knowledge and your and the story, you know, all those pieces are put, put together. Right. That's right. That's right. And, and even so, so often what happens is something like this. If, if a disclosure is not done, then, and, and let's say, they're well-meaning. Let's, let's just, let's just give the most generous assumption we can for both individuals and, and, and say that the, the person with the addiction, he has tried to share, you know, in a non-formal way. Okay. Here's everything that I did. Okay. And he really did his best that he could. And then say 18 months later, she finds an old email that he didn't, you know, with someone he didn't talk about. Some piece was left out. Now she's back to wondering, did he leave that out on purpose? Did he just forget? You know, what was going on there? And what else could he possibly left, have left out? Yeah, and what else is there? Exactly, and what else might have been left out? So number one, by doing the disclosure, number one, a trained professional is going to help you minimize what's left out. We can't guarantee 100% because the human memory, let's face it, is actually pretty terrible, uh, especially right. if there's been addiction on board. But number one, we can help minimize the chances of things left out to be discovered later. But number two, and this is especially true if they opt to use a polygraph to verify the disclosure, we, we can say, we can prepare people. You might find out a new detail later on that something else might come out, but at least now what you know, you know, that polygraph doesn't measure the truth. It measures truthfulness. He's given you everything he knows today. And that kind of sets them up so that if some small, I'm not talking about some huge thing that would be obvious, you know, left out on purpose, some small thing, you know, he said five times, I just discovered a sixth. Okay there's there's a basis there for them to process all right this doesn't mean we have to start over right 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 yeah like i think it's important to also acknowledge that with betrayal there's no sort of insignificant detail it's you know right i i, I because for a partner right it doesn't it's not so much the behavior it's the secrecy and it's the lies and the covering up and all of that. And so I think that we can look at these, the behaviors on a huge continuum and look at like all the way on the right, it's all the, it's really acute and the, the worst possible stuff. And then maybe an addict leaves out something that would be on the, all the way on the left, like in the less quote unquote significant part of the scale, but yet to a partner, it's like, I don't care if it's some, if it's just one more time that you did something I knew about, it's, it's a detail that you withheld or that I do not know. Right. Right. So I just think, right. I think that that's important to acknowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I, my experience is exactly what you shared uh, earlier, Marnie, that, that when I talk to betrayed partners, I, I want to say a hundred percent that I've talked to, um, I can't think of an exception have said, yes, the sexual betrayal hurt, but what hurts even more is that he could look me in the eye and lie to me that he could that he could come home and and play the role of a good husband when he was just acting out an hour earlier 
that deception, that lack of, of, of honoring your partner, having enough respect for your partner to tell them the truth right. is what cuts the deepest. Mm-hmm. Working with couples, I hear that over and over again. How, how could you just do that and then come home and tell me how much you love me? And you just did that. It's just, and it, the pieces don't fit. They can't make them fit together. And that's why, right. that's why we, you know, we approach treatment of betrayal trauma from this kind of two prong approach. The first is of course, the sexual behavior, the compulsivity, but the second part is uh, it's the integrity disorder. You know, Dr. Manwala created this model where he, he says, yeah, it's an actual integrity disorder. And that's all of those behaviors that accompany the addiction, all of the, the manipulation, all of the abuse, the psychological abuse, right. And denial and lies and all of that. And that that's as important, if not more important than just working on getting sober from those behaviors. Yeah. Because, because the addiction is the symptom right. <laughs> of right. these other, of these other deeper problems and, and how, you know, whether we frame it as an integrity disorder or developmental deficits or whatever it is, we've got to get down there to that level and do work for the good of the individual and partner, the individual with the addiction and the partner and the coupleship. I call that the triple win, right? We're always looking for the triple win. What's good for each of them individually and the relationship. And it is to get to those core character issues for their own development, like to become the person that I believe most of them deep down really want to be. Yeah, I mean, 99% of the people that come through the door, there's, there is this goodness in them hidden through all of that trauma. And they do want to do that for their partner. They just don't know how, and right. they've never seen it. And it, in some ways it seems completely foreign. Well, and, and also we, we, at the core, we say addiction is, is acting in an, incongru- you're not acting in congruence with your own values and beliefs. So for me, I've worked with a lot of men who actually, when they realize the lack of integrity that they have had, and they're actually like conceptualizing their behavior through their addiction, through the lens of psychological abuse or manipulation and all of that, there's actually often even some depression that accompanies that, some shock, like, wait, but I I thought I was a really good person. I thought I valued, I value honesty. Like I really do, I value honesty. And then to all of a sudden look and say, but I haven't been honest, oh my God. So right, for that person to actually become a person of integrity and to become the person that they actually in their mind thought that they were, right? That's really the goal yes. of recovery for the addicts, for the person who has done that uh, betraying. Yes. And, and, and I think, I think another way to say this same thing, and this is so important, I'm actually doing a writing project right now about this. So here's what we know about the science of change and creating new habits is that, that we can keep the cue and keep the same basic reward uh, and change the, the steps in between. Okay, so, so in the past, with, with so many of these couples that we're talking about, let's say she begins to express her pain or her anger. Well, that's in the past been a cue. Now, what he wants is relief, right? From, from, from the insecurity, pain, anxiety that her pain triggers in him. And so he's got all these steps withdrawing, defending, stonewall, it could be whatever, all this stuff to get to that relief. 
what we want to do is we want to introduce them to a different relief, a deeper relief, a more effective relief. And it's the relief of internally feeling that they are, are be, being and becoming the man or woman they want to be. There is nothing more rewarding and relieving than that. And if we can help them connect to that internal reward, now they don't measure success or failure based on whether it works with her or him, their betrayed partner. It's about did they show up and act congruent with their own values and move themselves in the direction of their own development. And I, and I think when the person who's done the betrayal starts to do that and starts to honor that reward system, in time, the partner begins to see it. Like yes. even, you know, in, in the beginning, they don't believe it and understandably so they shouldn't believe it. You know, it has to be earned, but as, and I, and I tell this a lot when I'm working with them, it's like, you got to give it time. You got to be consistent. You got to, you got to do it. And eventually you have to trust that your partner will see this shift in you, but you have to be there. You have to keep doing it. That's right. I, I tell them you, you're building a new history that's going to eventually have to outweigh the old history. And it doesn't mean minute for minute, day by for day, year for year. Thank God. It doesn't mean that. It just consistently, consistency over time is going to start adding up so that you, they have a new history to trust post-recovery. And, you know, this, right. this is a really, um, it's making me think of how many partners after the discovery and then certainly after disclosure, for instance, take photos down in their homes, right? They don't want to look at photos because, you know, they're, they associate that picture now that they thought was this wonderful family vacation with what they heard in right. disclosure, right? But what's interesting is that the addicts genuinely do not have that experience. It's very hard for them, in my experience. It's hard for a lot of my clients, um, my addict clients. They're like, but I did have a great time on that family vacation, right? Like, I wish you would leave, like, our wedding pictures up. I, and that's, that's another way, by the way, where they have different narratives, right? So this is that's right. And so when I work with men, I try so hard to explain this to them. You know, I get that your true experience was that you loved your wife so much and that your sexual behavior did not change that. But you have to understand that your partner has a different experience. And like, and I, and I, by the way, I thank you because I use that filing cabinet metaphor all the time. I used to talk about it and talk about it, but I didn't have the terminology. I didn't have this great <laughs> metaphor and the clients love it because they're like, yes, my filing cabinet was spilled out it was dumped onto the floor it's it, you know it's all over the place it's a mess so I, I i mean sort of all the addicts listening i just really want to make that point that it's important to recognize that while you're you know you might be have been able to compartmentalize and look at your behavior sexual behavior as something separate from what was going on in your life and your family that unfortunately is not the experience that your partner has yes so one, one of the ways that i try to help uh the folks who have done the betraying understand this is I'll draw two parallel lines on, on the whiteboard back there. And one is, is the story that they both know about. And the other is the story only he knows about until discovery. Right. And, and so at that moment of discovery for a betrayed partner, you know, they're going to go because now their attachment system is, is, is now alerting primal threat because this primary relationship is, is not safe, okay? 
they're going to go into threat mode, which means everything is labeled safe, unsafe, true, not true, good, bad, right, wrong, black, white, right? No nuance. There's no nuance thinking when we're in survival mode. So in that brain state, they're going to look at that second line that they just discovered and they're going to go, nope, that cannot continue. That cannot, not safe, not safe. But here's the, the piece that a lot of addicts don't get or, or guys who've done the betrayal don't understand. The same thing happens for that top line. The story that, that the betrayed partner did know about, the brain says, not safe, not safe. Because living that story allowed this other one to happen. And so I, I look guys in the eye or, or women, whoever's on the trail in the eye, after I draw that all on the board and I say, so guess what? It's dead. The old relationship is dead. Don't pull a weekend at Bernie's. Don't try to drag the thing, this corpse around thinking you're going to bring it back to life. And that's so awesome because then, then yes. they can have that shared because the women know that, assuming the guy's done the betrayal, yes. right? So partner is very, very aware of the fact that it's dead. That's the grief. That's the pain. So when he can actually yes. validate that and get it, even though it's so sad, right? Like that mm-hmm. in itself is, that's grief. Like that's deep yeah. grief. But if they could do it together. That's right. Wow. I, I, I learned this, this one phrase from some clients I, I was actually working with. So he, he was so resistant. This guy um, went to treatment, you know, got into recovery, was staying sober, but this relational piece and, and joining her in her, her pain and her grief, he was not good with that. And then all of a sudden it dawned on him. He's, th- this couple had lost a child about four year, four decades earlier. And the, the story is that she would always ask him to go with her to the grave side. And he always said, no, he's got a work meeting. No, he's got this. And why go there? You know, she's not there. She's in my heart, all of this. And, and all of a sudden, in the middle of a session talking about their betrayal, he starts crying and he said, I need to go stand at the grave with her. Wow. And it just dawned on He's got to look at what was lost with her. And he was, he, was, he was talking about their daughter, but he was talking primarily about their marriage and how he's left her alone to, to, to grieve. And so, so I say that to my clients now, you've got to get to the place where you can stand over the grave together. Absolutely. You have to do it together. And, and then that's when we can talk about resurrection. You know, that's when we can talk about healing and, and somehow mysteriously by grace, those old parts come back to life with new meaning and there's a new story with a deeper purpose and and a and a greater vision for the future than ever before and that's hard to believe on the front end of this journey but i've seen it happen i know you all have too in dozens and dozens and dozens of of couples it's why we do this work right because we've seen it happen right otherwise why would we ever ever do this absolutely we know change is possible i have have one question because i think you know, when, when we do these podcasts, we talk really, really broad about these big, you know, you got to grieve your losses and mm-hmm, you've got to, mm-hmm. and, and they're so big, but I know when clients come in, it's like, but, but what do I do now? I, I know I have to grieve losses. Well, how, how do I do that? Like, how does that work? Or 
can we talk a little bit about maybe some of the more smaller things in the moment that either a partner can do or an addict can do, the one who's done the betrayal, in the very moment, those small little pieces that get them on the path? Yeah, I think one of the most powerful things that can happen is for the the person who committed the betrayal to actually take the risk and lean in to become part of the healing process, you know, to actually learn to, to be part of the healing, even when they did the hurting. And, um, and there are a lot of tools out there. Um, one that I've put together is called making saves and it's saves is an acronym. I see, um, ask, validate, empathize, and secure. So, hey, I, I see that you're really quiet tonight and, and, and you look really sad. Are you struggling? Are you triggered? So ask, let them say, yeah, I am, or I think so. It makes sense to me that you're feeling that, you know, since today's the anniversary of XYZ and I can feel how pain, pained you are and then secure. I'm with you. I'm here. I'll sit with you in that pain as long as I can. Every single one of those steps is connected actually to a biological process of, of co-regulating somebody. And, and I've got that tool online. Like if anyone wants it, I, I can even create like a 50% oh, off that would code be for any listeners here. Um, yeah, that would be great. We'd love, we can put a link on our, on our website for them to be able to get access to that because I think those are the kind of tools that in the moment when they're dealing with their own dysregulation, the addict's dealing yes. with their own dysregulation, they need to have somewhere to go to and go, okay, what, what do I do now? What do I do now? As they yeah. learn it, as it becomes second nature and, and yes. what I was, it, it will become normal. Just keep doing it. Keep practicing. Right. You don't have to do it perfect. Just, That's right. just try your best and your partner will see your attempts in time. They may not react That's in right. the moment, you know, and, and because they have bad feelings, that doesn't mean it's a failure or difficult feelings. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's a failure. You keep doing it. But those kind of things, I think, really help clients grow. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times what I hear from, from male addicts is, well, I tried that. I tried doing X, Y, and Z. She rejected me, right? Or I, it didn't work. And so I talk a lot about try again, do not stop trying because when you do it once and then you don't do it again, first of all, you're making it about you. You feel rejected, right? And you're not making it about what's going on for your partner. And then number two, okay, so she didn't want to hug this time or she didn't want, right, to, to share with you what was going on. But try it again. Let her know that you're in it with her, right? Let her know that you're willing to stand in it with her and you can do it again. If you do not try again, the message is, well, I'm giving up, right? Or I'm not willing to, do, right. I'm not willing to, or you're, or again, you're making it about you and your own ego and, and your own feelings. And that's, um, that's, that's right. not going to lead to any kind of relational recovery. Yeah. That, yeah, that's, that's right. There's a, there's a paradigm shift that has to happen. And this, this I draw from, from the PACT model that talks a lot about, a lot about secure functioning. And so secure functioning is the idea that I don't have to have like individually, I don't have to have a secure attachment style in order to be in a secure functioning relationship, which hallelujah, good news, right? Like I can be preoccupied or avoidant, dismissive or whatever. And I can still be in a secure functioning relationship because it's based on principles. And one of those principles is this, 
It's the relationship comes first. It's I'm in a three-legged race. Uh, you know, uh, if, if either of us falls down, we both fall down. If I try to win and my partner lose, we both lose. I never have to choose between what's best for me and what's best for my relationship because what's best for my relationship defines what's best for me. I'll tell you what, I've worked with, with some men in a couple's context where all I do is explain that and they go, well, I've never thought of that. Well, you know what? If I, if I, if I followed that rule, everything would be different. And right. some, just knowing that all of a sudden now they've got this new paradigm to start measuring their own, you know, and choosing their own behaviors based on that. And it's a game changer. So, you know, maybe some listeners out there think about that. Like if, if what would happen if you considered your relationship to be the survival unit, not you by yourself, but your relationship and you start making choices about what to do based on what's best for the relationship. And you really believe that you can never do what's best for you. If it's not also what's best for the relationship. Game changer. I just heard Stan Tatkin um, talk about that in an interview with Rob Weiss recently on Rob's podcast. And I've listened to it, I think three times. I keep going back mm-hmm. to it because it's so good. And it's exactly it's so really what you were just talking about. And I, when I was listening, I thought game changer. That's, that's literally what I thought. I said, oh my God, yeah. if people could really get this, if the men, if the, if the addicts could really get this, that would shift well, like you said, it would be a paradigm shifter. I mean, that's what it would do. It would be like, oh, and but it requires them, again, to get out of their own ego, right? Get out of this, I need to be right, or or you know, or I'm being I'm being punished in some way, or I'm the bad guy. Yeah. So so a couple things to say about that. One is I want to distinguish between a defense and a deficit. You know, some of the guys that get caught up in these defense mechanisms you know, they start justifying, they start minimizing, they start blame shifting, you know, DARVO, right? Defend, accuse, reverse victim, offender roles, you know, that all of these things, those are defense mechanisms. But for a lot of the, of, of the clients we work with, th- these are not defense mechanisms. These are developmental deficits. They have never grown in their own development as individuals to even be able to conceptualize that sort of dyadic, you know, put the coupleship first, I am, I am truly giving myself over to this relationship. It's a developmental issue. And that's where just introducing them and helping them experience it a few times, it moves them in developing that capacity. And then one other piece to say about, and this is for any, anyone out there listening and you, you're the one who did the betraying and you're going, that sounds really good, but you know, she's not going to do that. Or, you know, Here's what we have to, here's just the reality we have to deal with. If betrayal is on board, there will be a period of time. If you're trying to rebuild the relationship, there will be a period of time where you will have to live by rules that your betrayed partner is not willing to live by yet until you show that you're, you are trustworthy to do so. How can I expect a betrayed partner to play by the rule that I, that what's best for the relationship defines what's best for me. She might have been playing by that rule for 20 or 30 years and it wasn't working. So you just need to suck it up and, and understand that the way you rebuild trust is by saying, I am willing to play by some rules that you're not going to feel safe playing by for a while. If you want to save the relationship. Wow. Jake, 
this has been an awesome interview. I mean, you have added so much to, um, I think for our listeners and I really appreciate you coming on and being part of this podcast, but before we go, you are also doing some stuff online. Can you tell us about that and what's going on and where people can get these resources and all of that? Sure, sure. So yeah, there's lots going on. I'm trying to put out lots of resources right now. Um, I have a new website. It's still got a few little kinks we're working out, but uh, maybe they'll be, they'll be all worked out by the time this airs. DaringVenturesAtHome.com www.daringventuresathome.com has lots of webinars and uh, just lots of resources um, that that folks can look into. That's where the Making Saves webinar is. And and I'll tell you what, I'll create a a coupon code um, for that uh, so that any listeners here could get that for 50% off if they want. You can just find it there on the website. That would be great. What we'll do is we'll put a link on our website with all that information so people can come to it. Fabulous. I'm glad. I'm really glad that we did this. And it's been so nice to talk to you. It's really nice to see that there are other people out there that are really uh, working from the same approach that we do and and also have so much enthusiasm and zest zest for the work. I really see that. Our listeners can't see your face. (laughs) But but trust me when I say that, you know, Jake, he's, he's... He's just passionate about this work and I am amazing. Thank you all so much for having me. It's been so fun. I love talking about this stuff. I'd love to do it again sometime. And thank you both for the work you do with couples. I know you help so, so many. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Dwayne and Marnie in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Dwayne in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.